This is Civilly Speaking, brought to you by the Ohio Association for Justice. Hello, and welcome to Civilly Speaking, OAJ's monthly podcast on practical and timely legal issues. I'm your host, Sean Harris. We're very happy today to have Al Gerhardstein from Cincinnati with us today, and his topic is police misconduct cases. Al Gerhardstein, thanks very much for joining us here on Civilly Speaking. Thanks for doing this podcast and for doing this program generally, and I'm happy to join you. So when we're talking about police misconduct cases, at the very outset, how do you investigate something like this? Well, Ohio is very fortunate to have a good public records law, and you should never file a police misconduct case without using it. Every, all the police reports, the incident reports, the radio traffic, the body cams, the incident recall is what it's called, There's, and, and the investigations, all that is public record. And as long as there isn't an open criminal case, you can get everything. And even if there is an open criminal case, you can get the initial incident reports and the cruiser cam and the body cam. So you should be able to do a pretty good job of looking at what you got before you make a decision as to whether this is a use of force that's excessive or not. And, and you mentioned body cams. I remember that being an issue recently, maybe going to the Supreme Court? Well, what we have recently is just a debate about whether all body cams are public records. It's pretty clear that they are public records, but there can be some exceptions. Again, if it's an cr- open criminal case, they can actually hold it. And we just had a shooting in Cincinnati where the, uh, where the Hamilton County prosecutor is holding the body cam until all the suspects are interviewed, but that should be released shortly after that. And then there are um, privacy concerns. So if the police are rushing in in an exigent circumstance, to a home and there are naked people in there that are innocent people, those types of figures and images can be blurred and redacted. Cincinnati has a team of about six people that do nothing but redact body cams. Wow. What, and we've been using this term police misconduct. What, what kind of conduct are we talking about? We're talking about Fourth Amendment violations for the most part. That is excessive force. Uh, which is the Fourth Amendment says that you shall not be subjected to unreasonable searches and seizures. And if the the police use excessive force, that's an unreasonable seizure. And the Fourth Amendment case law is pretty clear on what constitutes an unreasonable amount of force. And so we just apply the criteria. There's three basic things we look for. We look at the seriousness of the crime, whether the suspect posed a threat to the officer or to members of the public, and whether the suspect was fleeing or otherwise resisting the directions of the officer. It gets a lot more complicated, but that's the basic rule that we start with, and that's what the Supreme Court looks at as well. It's an objective standard. What would a reasonable officer do in like or similar circumstances? We also look at false arrest, malicious prosecution, substantive due process violations where the police increase the risk of harm to people, uh, privacy violations by the police where they seize people who are trying to film them. But, you know, three quarters of our cases involve use of force. Well, and that's interesting. You, you mentioned the idea of uh, people filming police. What does the law say about that? 
totally legitimate thing to do. That it is quite all right. If the police are in a public place, the suspect they are engaged with is in a public place, it is totally fine to film the police. Now, there can be some rare exceptions. I'm thinking of a case, for example, where a suspect is on the brink of suicide. The police are literally trying to talk the suspect off a bridge, and I'm familiar with a case like this. And the police ask the citizen who is across the street not to film them. And one of the things the police said was, you're making it harder for for this person to decide to save his own life. And that was literally true. The person was staying there saying, if I'm going to be on YouTube, I might as well jump. So I get it. I mean, there are situations where it's appropriate for the police in the exercise of their duties to ask somebody to shut his camera off. You know, staying on the issue of cameras, and and we were talking about body cams earlier, do you find that the footage from police body cam ends up being useful? Because I can imagine there there would be police who would obstruct the view from time to time. For the most part, we are getting good results from body cams. It doesn't mean it solves the problem. We've had cruiser cams across the state for over 10 years now. And the cruiser cams, of course, are on a more stable setting. And if the car is pointed in the right direction, the cruiser cam is actually the best as far as the filming goes. The body cams often are jiggly, and sometimes they end up being pointed down too far because they sag on the officer's uniform front. So we're still working through how to mount them in a way that gets you what you want to see. And what we do get more footage from body cams because usually officers work in pairs. So we'll get two or three versions of the same incident. But I'm involved in a shooting case right now in a city where we allege that the body cam shows that the suspect was holding a bladed item at his side when the police shot him. And the police are saying, no, that's not the blade. That's just a shaft of light. So even though we're all looking at the same thing, there's still room for disagreement on what we're seeing. Al, talk to us about uh, the differences between these police misconduct cases versus other kind of more general civil claims. Well, I'm talking to a group of excellent lawyers. OAJ lawyers know how to take their matter to court and get good verdicts. So when it comes to damages, when it comes to working your client up as a witness, that much is the same. But the substantive law is quite a bit different. There isn't just like a negligence standard. There is a lot of legal protection for police. First, the law itself is very police-friendly. So in order to just have a finding of a constitutional violation of excessive force, you have to really show that it's much more than negligence, that it's a that it's a, the type of conduct that no reasonable officer would engage in. But beyond that, the officers have a unique defense called qualified immunity. And that qualified immunity allows them to get a pass, even if it's a constitutional violation, if the law wasn't clearly established as of the time of the shooting. I was just in the Sixth Circuit earlier this week, and I was arguing a case involving an officer who walked up to a porch, and it was clear that the citizen on the porch didn't know that there was an officer out in the yard, and he thought it was some neighbor who had been harassing him. 
So he jumps up, and he's sitting there with a gun in his hand because he's a Second Amendment man with a concealed carry permit. But as he was taught, he wants to get away from a confrontation. He runs to the front door. The officer, still not identifying himself as an officer, says, stop. My client, the citizen, turns around, and he's still got his gun in his hand. So the officer shoots him. I'm in the Sixth Circuit arguing that the law was clearly established, that an officer needs to identify himself before he can use deadly force. And the opposing counsel, who was the winner in the court below, I got thrown out of court, said, hey, there was a gun pointed at him. He gets to shoot. So even in something that obvious, we need to struggle in order to get justice for citizens. Because on something like that, I thought it was just totally clear that an officer should always identify himself before he gets himself in a situation where he's doing a gunfight with a citizen. And my client had never even pulled the trigger. How about attorney's fees in these cases? Well, that's the one good thing. You can, if you win, under 42 U.S.C. 1988, you can get attorney's fees. And that's not like most civil cases. So that's good, and that becomes a bargaining chip when we're trying to get these cases resolved, because sometimes these violations are incurred by people who may not be the most attractive to a jury. I mean, I represent a lot of prisoners. I represent a lot of drug addicts. I represent people who get in trouble with the police. And so my, my judgment, you know, for somebody who's injured, you know, may be suppressed a little bit because they aren't going to like the client. But the attorney fee is going to be regular rate times a legitimate number of hours. And that pressure helps get some of these cases settled that would otherwise not get settled. Well, you mentioned the Sixth Circuit earlier. Are all these cases filed in federal court? It depends on where you are in the state. In the Northern District, I know that we try to file in state court if we think the defendant won't remove it. But most of the defendants are represented by a small group of defense counsel who know that they're going to be better off if they remove it to federal court. And so I don't like to waste the time to file it in state court and then have it be removed. In Montgomery County, the defendants will often leave it in state court. And that, that's a good state court, and I, I like doing that. State courts generally aren't interested in all that motion practice, and you're going to have a better shot at getting to trial. And, and let me just emphasize that it's the 1983 claim, along with a pendant state claim, that can be filed both in state and federal court. So you can file the federal civil rights claim in state court. It's just that most defense counsel will remove it, and you'll end up in federal court anyway. So we end up, by virtue of either our filing, because we want to get going, or because the defendants remove it with most of the cases in federal court. And the other thing I wanted to mention about qualified immunity is that this is a defense that can be asserted based on your pleadings, and if they lose, they can appeal to the Sixth Circuit. Then they can assert it again at the end of summary judgment, and if they lose, they can appeal it. So there's two interlocutory appeals that you may be facing before you ever get to trial, and that can be a pretty long slog. Wow. Obviously, these are civil claims, and there can be a, a financial... Uh, resolution, but what else do you, what other relief, types of relief do you seek in these police misconduct cases? Well, I like to say that our office pursues causes, not cases, because you wouldn't stick with these things so long 
if it was just about money. Just about every mom, and it's usually a mom, comes into our office and says, you know, I, I do want fair compensation, but I just don't want this to ever happen again to anybody else. And we listen to both of those goals. And we fight like mad to get as much money as we can, but we also always see changes in, in the training of officers, changes in policy. We often do memorials or different types of plaques uh, that will help the remaining officers stay vigilant and, and, and not fail to do their duty to protect citizens. Many times it's like mentally ill citizens or others who are on the margins of power, and, and we really try to make sure that we do something to deter future conduct. And that's a rewarding part of this. We, we settled a case in Boone County across the river recently where the county sheriff agreed to redo the whole use of force policy. He agreed to issue body cams to all the deputies. He agreed to uh, institute a policy where officers had to be vigilant and report all drugs that they take uh, that, that might affect their, their capacity. And, and the mom, knowing that those types of reforms were achieved through the mediation that she could never get had we tried it, that was very comforting to her. So you're telling me the law is both a business and a profession? I like to think so. And, and if you, you know, I hope we never forget that. And I know that there are many people in OHA who get involved in industry groups and fight for product changes and, and other things. And, and related to that, I'm going to remind you, if we, if we haven't talked about this before, our retainer agreement actually says that we strongly discourage the client from entering into any confidentiality agreement. And we, we really press the client as hard as we can to not succumb to that pressure. And I know they won't always go along, but most of the time our agreements are public. Now, most of our defendants are public agencies, so we have the public records law in our favor. But there's a lot of private vendors doing medical care in jails and other private defendants that we resist this with. Because if, if all this work and all this exposure of abuse and, and, and bad training and, and wrongful conduct gets swept under the rug just with the payment of a couple dollars, we're not doing our job. And we fight very hard to make sure that the public learns what we've learned. Well, and when you say you fight hard, tell us about how you approach that. Because, you know, in, in whether it's an injury settlement or a police misconduct case or whatever, lots of times they, of course, spring the confidentiality clause on us at the last minute. How do you and, handle that? Well, we anticipate it. I mean, we put in our demand letters that we aren't going to agree to confidentiality. We warn the mediator that we're not going to agree to confidentiality. Like I say, our clients already signed a retainer agreement saying that they aren't going to agree to confidentiality. And we don't leave it as a mystery as to what we intend to do. You can go on our website and you'll see the type of notices we've issued. And, we've, and the best notices are joint. We've done some great stuff with defendants where I get to set, get up and, and I say, I want to congratulate the county of such and such because they have instituted this new policy where they've done CIT training for all their officers and they've, they're working in soup kitchens you know, for, for 40 hours a quarter so that they get to meet the clients when they aren't arresting them and whatever the reform is. And I'm giving them a pat on the back. And the mom is standing there saying, yes, I'm really grateful that they've listened to us. And so there's a way to do this where the defendants can feel proud 
of what you've accomplished, and the money gets buried in the story. And that's fine. That's all good. I want them to feel proud. I want them to own the reform. And that's what we try to do. A true win-win. Yes. You know, we've talked about police misconduct cases, and I will say that those are a bread-and-butter type area for those of us who do civil rights work. But any time an OAJ member gets a case where the government has screwed somebody, where you think, and just do a gut check, forget con law. I'm not saying you have to be an expert in all these different areas. But if you think the government has abused the right of your client, then there may be, using Section 1983 and all the provisions of the Constitution, a way to secure rights for the person who's been violated. So I just want to keep people's minds open. And even though there are plenty of defenses for government agents, we still can find ways to get people to be held liable. And I think today, more than ever, it's important to use the courts to hold the executive branch in check because we seem to be in a time when we're all under assault by those who think that there, there are no limits on what government power can do. So there are some, and we have that tool. Al, I want to ask you about a case that you worked on in the last couple of years called Obergefell, which we know as the Supreme Court marriage equality case that you were involved in. And I gather that the case in a, in a different form is ongoing. What, is there a book? Is there a movie? What's happening? Well, it's been a lot of fun, and, and there are, I can't say that about many of my cases because most of them are wrongful death cases. And this one was, a, although my client died and the case involved a death certificate, in the end, as you say, it was about marriage equality, and, and that was very thrilling to end the case with a gay pride parade and have all the celebration across the country when the Supreme Court announced the decision in Obergefell. And about six months after that, a book came out called Love Wins, which tracks some of my cases and the work we did in this firm on Obergefell, as well as the relationship between Jim Obergefell and his deceased spouse, John Arthur. And so that book then got picked up by 20th Century Fox and the screenplay is being written as we speak, and I guess one of these days there's going to be a movie. And the whole thing is, is a lot of fun, and it's just a very different experience from the usual uh, litigator's story about uh, what happens when you do a case. And am I correct that the part of Al Gerhardt's sign will be played by Robert Redford? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? And, <laughs> and I will tell you that I, I did have to sign a contract that involved my life rights, which is literally what they called oh it. Oh, my. I had to retain a Hollywood lawyer who charged like $975 an hour to read a boilerplate contract who he basically ended up telling me I couldn't change a word of it. <laughs> and I said, just, you know, just don't put me in bed with somebody or give me some kind of scandal, you know, in this movie. And he said, don't worry about it. They'll never do that. So I have no control over what's happening. I have no idea who plays who. I have no idea how it's all going to turn out. But I can tell you that it's, it's been a lot of fun. Well, Al Gerhardstein, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for joining us here on Civilly Speaking. Thanks for doing this. Take care. 